بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وبه نستعين صلى الله عليك يا سيدي يا مولاي يا رسول الله وعلى أهل بيتك المذلومين صلى الله عليك يا سيدي يا مولاي مولاي وابن مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا رحمة الله الواسعة ويا باب نجاة الأمة يا غريب يا مظلوم كربلا ما خاب من تمسك بكم والأمنة من لجأ إليكم سادتي يا ليتنا يا ليتنا كنا ماكم فنفوز والله فوزا عظيما قال الله العظيم في محكم كتابه الكريم والقول كالحق والأستق القائلين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ذلك ومن يعظم شعائر الله فإنها من تقوى القلوب آمنا بالله صدق الله العلي العظيم سلام محمد وآل محمد One more recitation of salawat. When the crescent appears marking the beginning of the month of Muharram, there is a really intense sense of grief and sadness. At the very least, I know enters into my heart. As the days were approaching over the last few days, and as we know that within our city, the weather started to change as well. I don't know if it was just the clouds that appeared in the sky, but there was a real sense of gloominess that began to overtake my soul. Because I recognized that the time for the grandson of the Prophet of God to depart from this world was approaching. These days of Muharram are days of really intense grief and sadness, not only for us, but in reality we transmit that grief because of our love for the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. For it was he himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who would grieve from the beginning of the month of Muharram in recognition of what was going to happen toward his grandson, Sayyid Shabab Ahlul Jannah, the leader of the youth of paradise, Al Hussein ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, alayhi salatu wasalam. And for today's discussion, I wanted to reflect a little bit in regards toward the importance of symbolism and ritual within our faith tradition. Because so much of what we do during these days of Muharram are ritualistic performances that recollect the tragedy of Abi Abdullah al-Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, and that in reality we do that in order to connect with a higher power. Because the ritual that we perform and the symbols that we call upon during these days are in reality a means for us to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the best of our abilities 
and to the best of our potentials. Every single thing that we do within our religion is mixed with ritual and is mixed with symbol. When you go ahead and take a look at your prayers, for instance, our prayers are comprised solely of symbols and rituals. It's comprised of standing and of bowing and of prostrating. And fasting during the month of Ramadan, we look at the calendar to tell us when the day begins and when the day ends. And then we perform acts of ritual. We're told, for instance, on the nights of Layal al-Qadr, on the nights of A'mal, to go into sujood and to submit yourself toward God in a symbolic means you prostrate toward God, again, in order to demonstrate that, oh Allah, like I am at your service in its entirety. When you go ahead and take a look at the Hajj pilgrimage, it's filled with so many symbols that are seemingly very strange to the one performing it. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And alhamdulillah, a couple of us just came back from Hajj. And we know that we make a circle around a cube. And you take small rocks and you throw it at a big rock. And then you go and you slaughter an animal, even though that we don't even know where the meat of that animal is even distributed, you know, across the city of Mecca or in Mina or wherever it might be. But in reality, we are performing actions in the same way that Ibrahim performed them. We walk between Safa and Marwan. We're told to jog between this from point A to point B because that's when Hajar, the wife of Ibrahim, would jog when she was trying to find water for her son Ismail between Safa and Marwan. So we jog. And someone says, why all of these rituals? And why all of these symbols? And when we come toward the Majlis of Hussein, alayhi salam, all it is is ritual. We come and we wear black clothing in order to demonstrate our grief for the king of martyrs, Al-Husayn alayhi salam. We begin with poetry. Then we have a eulogy. And then after that we, re- we conclude with more poetry. And then after that we distribute food. And after that we distribute water. And then we give sweets. And we do all of these things that to many people are really strange. Because why are you performing these rituals for 1400 years? In reality, it's supposed to yield something. It's supposed to take us out of our element for that moment while we are in the performance of those rituals to allow for it to transcend towards something greater. We have a really important notion across the different religious studies. And in reality, you find this across all different theological schools of all different religions everywhere across the world known as sacred space. There are certain times, there are certain days, there are certain moments, there are certain places which seemingly connect you to God more than other places. In our tradition, you go toward the Holy Kaaba. We physically have to go and perform Hajj. You have to leave your home and you have to get on a plane or you have to get on the back of a horse as they used to do in the olden days. And you have to commute a really, 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 really long commute toward getting to the holy city of Mecca so that you can circumambulate the Kaaba and perform all of the rituals of the Hajj or of the Umrah. And we go really far toward making the ziyarah of the Prophet in the city of Medina because there's something sacred about being in the city of Medina. And then there are certain locations within our own homes. Within our tradition, you can pray really anywhere, right? Anywhere that you find place, you can literally get on the floor and pray. 
But what do we often do? We have like prayer mats or we have prayer rooms that we pray in because seemingly they're symbolic of the place where you connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a sense of sacredness within those locations. Which is why literally, even though we know that our house is really clean, we still make sure that when we want to pray, we take out a prayer mat because it's a reminder also. And we're told from within our ahadith and scholars of law, they tell us that when an individual is passing away, if you have a family member who is passing away, in their last moments in what is known as al-ihtadar, it's literally the last moments of their life, you should take them to the room that they would always pray in, in their home. If it was their bedroom, if it was their living room, wherever it was, take them to that room because symbolically it might be a means by which they connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that moment. And furthermore, being in that space might be a means to intercede for that individual as he's about to pass away. And then of course there are certain days. In the same way that there are certain places, certain times, there are certain days. The nights of Layal al-Qadr, the nights of Shah Ramadan, these nights of Muharram. So what they do is allow for us to utilize it as a stepping stone to sort of reevaluate where we've been since the previous year. Because it's not only about coming and performing ritual, as we all know. It's about allowing for our ritual to transcend, to allow us to be spiritual. It's not about wearing the black clothes because I just want to show everybody that I'm sad. But in reality, it's a reminder to myself about everything that the family of the Prophet stood for. Again, not for me to show anybody else, but for me to remind myself every time I look in the mirror. During the course of these next 10 days and the 40 days after that, all we do is wear black. And it's not about shedding a tear just to shed a tear. And even though we have narrations that have reached the level of mutawatir that are absolutely authentic within our tradition that state that the one who sheds the tear for the son of the Prophet of God, sallallahu alayhi wa wasallam, he has X and Y and Z reward. It's not about the reward that I'm talking, but rather it's about what that tear is supposed to yield in terms of an internal change within our hearts and within our souls. So we see that within Islamic tradition, like across religious traditions all across the board, symbolism and ritual is really deeply embedded. And specifically in the school of Ahlul Bayt in regards toward our rituals that we perform during the days and in the nights of Muharram in honor of Imam Al-Hussein many people, they converse and they engage in a lot of different sorts of debates around rituals that we perform in the name of Imam Al-Hussein And so for today's discussion, inshallah, I want to reflect as a very brief introduction to our majalis over the next several nights in regards toward the importance again of symbolism as a link toward faith. And I want to do so on three important dimensions. The first thing is to reflect upon the verse of the whole Qur'an, which I began with, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, وَمَن يُعَذِّمْ شَعَائِرَ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهَا مِنْ تَقْوِ الْقُلُوبِ The first dimension is in terms of understanding 
what are the signs and what are the symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Secondly, I want to reflect a little bit in regards toward the symbols and the rituals that we perform, specifically in the name of Imam al-Husayn alayhi salatu And thirdly, what we hope to yield in terms of benefit from the ritualistic gatherings that we have for Ashura, for Imam al-Husayn alayhi salatu So firstly, what are the symbols that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about within the whole of Qur'an when He states, وَمَن يُعَذِّمْ شَعَائِرَ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهَا مِنْ تَقْوَى الْقُلُوبِ A verse that's oft quoted during these days of Muharram in order to virtually defend ourselves against people who say that performing these rituals in the name of Imam al-Husayn are not permissible. But I don't want to really go on the defense, but rather understand for our own selves. When we come toward understanding Islamic law, we see that many laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established for us have been presented and preserved by means of textual evidences. What's a textual evidence? The first phase of textual evidences that we have are the verses of the whole Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, within the whole of the Qur'an, He tells us how to pray, He tells us how to fast, He tells us that we have to go for hajj, He tells us that we have to pay zakat, and so on and so forth. And similarly, we have what is known as the hadith literature. We have the words, we have the sayings, we have the sermons, we have the advices of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, and by extension his family, the Ahlul Bayt alayhimu salatu wa what they advise or what they command for us to perform, we are told to perform it. If the Imam السلام, if the Prophet وسلم, says that you have to perform Maghrib prayers like this, then we have to perform it like that. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that you have to go for Hajj, if you have the means to do so, you have to go for Hajj. Because a commandment that comes from God and a commandment that comes from His Messenger and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt والسلام, are virtually non-negotiable. When they tell us to do something, when they give us a commandment, we submit toward their commandment. Muhammad wa Muhammad. If you guys could please keep your phones on silent. So the first type of law that we have within our tradition are laws that we understand by means of textual evidences. From the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us guiding principles. For instance, He says, pray. But we don't know how to pray. So the Prophet teaches us how to pray. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, you have to fast during the month of Ramadan. But all of the details around fasting during the month of Ramadan and exactly how to do so and what are the prohibitions and what are the recommendations and what are the obligations, those are all things that are divine to us by the Prophet and by the Ahlul Bayt And then furthermore, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to go for hajj. It's up to the Prophet to explain to us exactly how we do that. But then we also have, again, within our tradition, whereby we have been given the guiding principle, but we don't necessarily have any explanation on exactly how to do that. Let me give you an example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us within the whole of Qur'an that 
Respect your parents. Be righteous to your parents. Does he explain to us in detail how exactly we are to be righteous to our parents? He doesn't. It's not clearly defined anywhere. Maybe again we're given certain hints and certain advices, but nothing that necessarily delineates what we have to do and what we absolutely cannot do in terms of its detail. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by the teachings of Ahlul Bayt alayhim salam, they advise us, for instance, how to treat our neighbors. Or at least they tell us, treat your neighbors well. But how exactly am I to treat my neighbors? It's not clearly defined with any sort of detail. Again, rather we're just given guiding principles. And it's up to the society or what is known as the Urf to determine. It's up to a specific community to determine how I should respect my mother or how I should respect my parents or how I should be good to my neighbors. The interpretation is up to that specific community or those specific individuals. Let me give an example to sort of open the discussion a little bit further. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, again, respect your parents. The hadiths of Ahlul Bayt, they tell us, make dua for your parents, don't say uff to your parents, you know, speak nice words to your parents, so on and so forth, naturally. But what more than that can we fulfill in terms of our obligation to our parents? If I miss my mother's birthday, or if, God forbid, I miss Mother's Day, right? My parents or my mother would be really upset with me. And I might have disrespected my parents and not fulfilled my obligation to her because she doesn't like when I miss Mother's Day. Understand what I'm saying? But in another culture, people might not care about Mother's Day. Or in another family, mom didn't even know that it was Mother's Day. Or she didn't even know her own birthday was today. So if you miss bringing her a cake, for instance, it's really not that big of a deal. But for my mother, I can't miss Mother's Day. And for my mother, I can't miss her birthday. Similarly, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala advises us that we need to, for instance, like respect our neighbors. In some cultures, respecting your neighbors means to go and say salam to them every single day. And to go and visit them, and to go and distribute food to them, and so on and so forth. But in our community, and in our culture, excuse me, living in New York City, if I don't go and say hello to my neighbor once every week or once every month, that's okay. In fact, most of us don't even know our neighbor's names. And I'm not saying that's the right thing, but I'm saying that if I do not go out of my own self and extend myself toward my neighbor's, it's not the end of the world in terms of me not fulfilling my obligation toward those around me. Of course, we should be always making an extra effort toward our neighbors. But nonetheless, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is probably not going to hold me accountable on the judgment day because he said, treat your neighbor as well. And I didn't really distribute food or you know, bring a cake to my neighbor on Eid, for instance, or whatever it is that we might do in other cultures. What I'm trying to say is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, some manifestations of law are clearly defined for us. And other manifestations of law are determined by a particular community and by a particular society. When it comes toward our mourning ceremonies that we have in the name of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, 
we have the opportunity to determine exactly how the medjlis, for instance, is going to look. Ritualistically, or excuse me, has not been defined jurisprudentially by the Prophet, by the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within the whole Qur'an, how these gatherings are supposed to look for us. Of course, culturally, 1400 years ago, up till now, black is a symbol of grief. But if you go to a different part of the world where black is not a symbol of grief, and for them, a symbol of grief is red, then great, wear red. In the name of Imam al-Hussein, again, in order to demonstrate how sad you are. And again, going back to understanding this, we are we oftentimes, like within our cultures, in order to respect our neighbors or to respect our parents, we embrace them when we see them. And depending on what sort of culture, again, you come from, you know, either you kiss them like on the right cheek, or you kiss them on the left cheek, or you kiss them on the forehead, or you kiss them on the hand. There's some um, people in the Gulf, in, in, in a lot of Gulf countries, that when they want to greet someone, they like touch their noses with one another. Have anyone seen this before? Right. The first time I saw it, I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really strange, right? But the way that they respect their elders, the way that they respect their parents, is they literally, after shaking their hand, they make the tip of their noses touch. My nose is so big, man. I wouldn't want anyone to recognize that. What I'm trying to say is that there's a different means of demonstrating how we respect others. And when it comes toward how we respect, say, the Shahada al-Husayn salam, and how we commemorate these majadis gatherings, Anything that we do in the name of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam, because we have not been given any sort of guideline is in regards to what is permissible, what is an obligation, so on and so forth, should be a means for our own encouragement. If tomorrow someone comes to me, and I've said this before, and they say that, you know what, during the majlis of Imam al-Hussein in New York City, what do people, how do people grieve in New York City? How do people grieve in the United States? They hold candles, for instance. Tomorrow, you want to hold candle while I'm reciting the Majlis? Hold candle. No problem. If tomorrow you say that in my culture we don't wear black, we wear red, no problem. Wear red. What's the problem? You say we don't serve rice and lentils in my culture, bring another food. We'll serve something else. What difference does it make? If it's in the name of Hussein ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, and if the end goal is to see closeness toward His Eminence, the Holy Prophet them by means of our ritual grieving for Imam Hussain and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again states in the whole Qur'an وَمَن يُؤَذِّمْ شَعَائِرَ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهَا مِنْ تَقْوَى الْقُلُوبِ Those who honor the signs and the symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's a demonstration of God consciousness within their hearts. What are the signs of God? Is not anything that takes you toward God's remembrance, God's sign. The Kaaba is a sign of God. The mounts of Safa and Marwa are the signs and the symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Karbara is a sign of God. The Prophet is a sign of God. Hussein is a sign of God. The Quran is a sign of God. For some people, this dress is a sign of God. So I would say it probably is not a sign of God because of the way that a lot of people demonstrate their own actions by means of this dress code. But nonetheless, anything that reminds you of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
could be a manifestation of the sign or the symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he states, وَمَن يُؤَذِّنْ شَآئِرَ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهَا مِنْ تَقْوَى الْقُلُوبِ That those who honor these signs and who honor these symbols, this is a demonstration of taqwa. We talked about it so much for those of you who are here during the holy month of Ramadan. What does taqwa mean? To feel the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And by honoring the tragedy of Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, we're connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So don't think anything otherwise because remembrance of him is remembrance of God's Prophet. And remembrance of God's Prophet is remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As the Prophet himself, he states, Husaynin minni wa ana min al-Husayn. That Husayn is from me and I am from Husayn. Ahabballah man ahabba Husayna. And that Allah loves the one who loves Husayn. And this brings me thus to the second part of my discussion. And that's in regards to how Ahlul Bayt have honored the greatest sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, have honored the tragedy of Imam al Hussein alayhi salatu And we've touched on this during our workshop a couple of weeks ago, a couple of last week. But again, in order to throw out a couple of glimpses. Grieving for Imam al-Husayn alayhi salatu wasalam is a prehistoric tradition. The first individual to grieve for Husayn's tragedy alayhi salatu wasalam is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam himself. In that famous narration, only days or only moments after Husayn alayhi salatu wasalam was born, he was put into the hands of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi And as the Prophet looked at him and he embraced him and he kissed him, and he would take his hand and put it on his cheek. And he would begin to cry. And at that moment, his wife, Umm Salma, she came toward the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa And she said, O oh, Rasulullah, today is a day of happiness. It's the day of the birth of your grandson. Why do we see you grieving like this? He didn't respond for a moment. And then the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa said, O oh, Umm Salma, don't tell Fatima yet that this child of mine is going to grow up and he is going to be butchered by people who claim to be from within my community. And the Holy Prophet ﷺ began to weep. And Umar Salma said, O oh Rasulullah, and how do you know that that is going to happen? He said, Jibra'il came down from the sky, he descended upon my home. And he narrated to me the tragedy of my son Hussein. So who was the first one to recite the majlis of Imam al-Hussain? Jibra'il. And who was the first one to weep for Imam al-Hussain? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And you would find the tradition of grieving for Imam al-Hussain alayhi salam and honoring Imam al-Hussain alayhi salatu salam's tragedy at any and every opportunity that we got Again, it's something that we're taught by the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. The Imams, every single one of them, would invite people to come in gathering ceremonies like this, beginning on the first of Muharram, when Imam al Kadim alayhi salam, Imam al would narrate that my father, Imam Musa ibn Ja'far alayhi salam, would never be seen smiling beginning on the first of Muharram until after the day of Ashura. 
And it was Imam Zainul Abidin who after the tragedy of Karbala, every time he would have food in front of him, his food would be filled with his own tears because he would remember the hunger of his father, Abi Abdullah So this is not a ritual that we perform because we perform it culturally, but rather it's something that's embedded and taught to us by God's Prophet and his Immaculate family. It is said in one tradition that Imam Zainul Abidin he was performing the Hajj. And the Imam السلام, he performed the Hajj upwards of 25 times, our hadiths they tell us, Imam Zainul Abidin. He was in Mina one day, and for those of you who don't know, Mina, after, you, after the day of Eid, it's an obligation for those pilgrims to spend two additional days in the city of Mina, which is the place where we perform the sacrifice and is where we throw the stones at the Jamarat. And it's the place where Ibrahim السلام, was to slaughter his son Ismail, but as we know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replaced it with an animal instead. It is said that Imam Zainul Abidin was sitting amongst a group of those hujjaj that he performed the pilgrimage with that year. And by the way, in Mina, in those additional two days, the 11th and the 12th of Dhul Hijjah, where pilgrims again are obligated to stay, there are no specific acts of worship that are to be performed other than the striking of the Jamarat. And which is why many scholars, they come forth and they state that Mina is probably a time which is really, really important toward building community and to be engaged in sort of social conversations. To meet with people, to talk to people. There's not a lot going on. People are really, really tired after performing the Hajj. It's an opportunity to unwind, but with those people who you perform the pilgrimage with. And Imam Zainul Abidin, is again, he's sitting with a group of his companions. They have nothing really going on. So they're discussing and they're you're having conversations about life and about family and about God and about Qur'an and about whatever. And one of those in the gathering of Imam Zainul Abidin turned out to be a famous poet who would recite poetry and praises of the Prophet and of his family. And when the news had come toward Imam Zainul Abidin the great grandson of the Prophet of God he says, why don't you recite some lines of poetry in honor of my father, al Hussein ibn Ali in Mina. So it is said that he recited some lines of poetry, of lamentation poetry, marthiya, that we recite, in order to invoke the emotion of those who were in that gathering, to the extent that one of the companions, he states, that when the poem was completed, I looked up and I looked at Imam Zainul Abidin and his eyes were filled with tears. At that moment, he went and he took some money and he gave it to that poet and he advised everyone else if they have the ability to give money to this poet because of his service to Imam Al-Hussein. Anywhere and everywhere that you can, remember Imam Al-Hussein. Someone says, but why the tragedy? And why the recollection of the tragedy year after year for 1400 years and the same grieving and the same wailing and the same anecdotes? Have we just become a people who cry? Tomorrow is the anniversary of 9-11. In the same way that 
people all across this city and all across this country and all across the world, they remember the exact moment of where they were when they heard the news of what happened in 9-11. I know that I do, and I know that probably the majority of you do as well, if you're old enough. Tomorrow there's going to be memorial ceremonies in New York City and probably every other city in the world, every other large city in the country, excuse me. And all flags in this country are going to be put down to half-staff, right? Why? Year after year, why do you want to recollect the same tragedy? Would anyone dare say that to anybody? Why do you want to grieve over people who passed away 20 years ago? And if you were to ask that question in 30 years, and if you were to ask that question 50 years, and if you were to ask that question 150 years from now, you would always get pushback. Why? Because people lost their lives, man. And families, they want to grieve. And even if it's 200 years from now, people still want to grieve, so let them grieve. Grief is something that is innate. You can't take it away from the human being. Anyone who tells you you can't grieve, Grieving is haram. Don't weep over your loved ones. Doesn't know anything about religion. Doesn't know anything about morality. If you lost a loved one, you should feel free to cry. And if you lost someone or something that's very near and dear to you, and if you're going through hardship, and if you're going through trial, and if you're going through tribulation, then what's the problem? Someone says, but that's not even your loved one. I respond by saying that I don't love anyone more than I love the son of the messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wa That I know my father's name, and I know my grandfather's name, and I know my great-grandfather's name, and I know my great-great-grandfather's name. I don't know anyone beyond that. And I wouldn't grieve for them. And if I read a lot of biographies about them and about all of the good deeds that they did, I'd make to offer them. But I know the name of Hussein. And Hussein salam is way more important to me than any one of my family members. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by the tongue of the Prophet of God, sallallahu alayhi wa ta'ala, that Allah loves the one who loves Hussein. And as again, as I mentioned the other night during the workshop, someone says, why grieve then the way that you do? You go ahead and take a look at images all across the world when someone loses a loved one. You turn on the TV, God forbid, after any sort of natural disaster, after some tsunami, after an earthquake, after a hurricane that takes the lives of people. Or if you turn on the TV and you see images of a post-suicide bomb blast that takes place in Afghanistan or that takes place in Iraq or in Pakistan or wherever it might be, and you see images of people who lost their loved ones, what's the picture that you see? You see people with their hands smacking their faces. And you see people with their hands beating their chests. Because it's a natural reaction to grieve the way that we grieve. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, وَمَن يُعَذِّمْ شَعَائِرَ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهَا مِنْ تَقْوَى الْقُلُوبِ That the one who honors the signs of God, that's a demonstration of God consciousness. That's a demonstration of recognizing who your Creator is. That's a demonstration of knowing yourself and knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala man arafa nafsa faqad arafa rabba and again because we have not been told within any sort of textual evidence that you should not be doing this and do it and grieve in the name of Hussein ibn Ali alayhi salatu wasalam 
And that brings me to the third point, the third dimension of my discussion. And that is, what exactly then are we trying to yield in light of all of these rituals that we perform during these days of Muharram? Again, to pose that question that I asked before to myself and to all of you, and really something that we need to always consistently be thinking about year to year, is are we just a community of weepers? Are we just people who wear black and cry and we leave from these gatherings after that? For a lot of people, they probably see us like that. And for a lot of us, we are like that. In the same way that during the month of Ramadan, you're not able to attain taqwa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states that He prescribed fasting for us. لَأَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ for most people during the month of Ramadan, you just starve yourself for 15 or 16 hours. We don't really attain taqwa. Inshallah, we have. But a lot of people, it takes a really long time, many years of fasting during the month of Ramadan to get to that. And again, I'm not talking about reward. Will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward us for fasting during the month of Ramadan even if we haven't really manifested all qualities of beauty? Of course He will. Because that's out of God's grace and out of His mercy and His compassion. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, إِنَّ السَّرَاتَ تَنْهَا وَالْمُنْكَرِ That prayers is supposed to take you away from committing sin and bad deeds. Does praying five times a day and recommended prayers really take me away from performing bad deeds and committing sin? Unfortunately for me, it doesn't. But will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not accept any of my prayers? Out of God's mercy and out of His grace and out of His compassion, inshallah He will. Will God reward me for wearing black? Will God reward my tears in the name of Hussein? Will God reward my sponsorship, be it by my wealth or be it by my food or be it by my presence or be it by by my du'a? Of course He will. That's out of His grace and that's out of His compassion and that's out of His mercy. But I want to be able to take something more out of the performance of all of these rituals again. With fasting, I want to become someone who has taqwa. With prayers, I don't want to have any more sin and vice in my heart. What do we want from the rituals that we perform in the name of Hussein ibn Ali? Alayhi salatu wasalam. Three things. Three things that the majlis of Hussein alayhi salam and the performance of these sha'ar, they point toward. Firstly, it teaches us what it means to stand up for the truth. And again, I'm going to repeat something that I've said many, many times during many Muharrams previous to this. Imam al Hussein alayhi salam is not to be compared toward any other social activist. Imam al Hussein alayhi salam is no Colin Kaepernick. Imam al Hussein alayhi salam is not Martin Luther King. Imam al Hussein alayhi salam is not Gandhi. Imam al Hussein alayhi salam is not Malcolm X. Hussein is Hussein. He makes a stand for that which is right. And he does stand up for justice. And a major component of these days and of the message of Hussein salam is yes, is rooted in social justice. Absolutely. But don't limit him to just that. And no disrespect to any of those personalities that I mentioned before. But Hussein salam does not only stand for what is right, but he stands for what is right 
because of his understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It stems from a spiritual, religious lens that he looks outwardly through because he has spiritual insight in terms of what is known as al-basira. Imam al-Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, he is on another level because of his relationship with God. But going back toward that point, the first thing that we really want to be able to attain is also the quality of being able to stand up for that which is right. To be able to stand up for the truth. Every single one of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt after Imam Al-Hussein, Al-Sajjad, Al-Baqir, Al-Sadiq, Al-Kadhim, Al-Rida, Al-Jawad, Al-Hadi, Al-Askari, until the 11th Imam of Ahlul Bayt, they all lived in a time where the socio-political situation continuously pressured them and isolated them. And their communities, and as we see many people across the world who are members of the school of Ahlul Bayt, who are Shia, they are isolated and they are marginalized within their own communities. And Imam al-Hussein sacrifices this unique glimmer of hope that we utilize as a means of inspiration for us to state that no matter what we're going through, we're never going to submit toward falsehoods. In the words of Hussein himself, when the governor of Medina came to him, and we'll talk about that more over the next couple of nights, and said that Muawiyah has passed away, it's an obligation for you now to pay allegiance toward Yazid. He responds in this famous line, Mithli la mithla. A man like me will never give allegiance to a man like him. Because I stand up for that which is pure and the truth and justice and beauty. I stand up for godly qualities. And Yazid is so far away from that. So understand that Hussein stands up for that which is right. And again, I don't only mean on a socio-political lens or in a socio-political sense to stand up for what is right. It also means to perform the inner struggle of your own hearts and of your own souls to make sure that you're performing the right deed and committing to the right action every single day. When you wake up in the morning, remember what Hussein stood for and then know that if I am amongst those who are with Hussein, then I'm amongst those who stand with the values of Hussein. The second thing that these rituals are to yield is to allow to create and build a sense of a compassionate community. Imam al-Hussein, when Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, his brother comes toward him before he left the holy city of Medina, he said, are you sure that you really are going to do what you're going to do? You're going to leave? Don't leave. Just stick around over here. We're going to figure it out. We'll be okay. Imam al-Hussain he states, That I'm not leaving for amusement, nor am I leading, nor am I leaving the city to oppress anyone, nor to take anyone else's rights, nor for any other reason. 
The only thing that I'm leaving for is to establish a sense of reconciling the affairs of the community of my grandfather Muhammad If Ashura does not make us a better community after Ashura, then we haven't stood up to that which Imam Al-Hussein stood up to. I was giving the Friday sermon Maryland a couple of days ago and I made this point. I think it's really important because as I was entering into the masjid around time of Jum'ah, went to go make wudu. And one of the elders of the community came to me, who happened to be one of the leaders of the community as well. And he said, during your sermon, could you just speak to everyone about the importance of like, sticking together? Because everyone always gets into arguments during Muharram about this, about that, about this story, about that story, about whether we should perform this ritual, whether we should perform that ritual. It's like chaos. He said, just like say something. And I thought to myself, I was like, oh my goodness. Every year, wherever I go, during the next two months, like just don't do it, but I'm sure you're going to fall into it. Like go on like on social media and like see the type of like debates and conversations and polemics that people get into. Is it really making us better people, man? Is it making us a better people? to discuss with people who don't believe in these rituals, don't discuss with them. And then amongst yourselves, don't argue about things. Understand the bigger picture. Because it's not about the wearing of black. It's not about the poem that's recited. It's not about the majlis that I deliver. It's not about the tears that we shed. It's about building something that's sustainable in our hearts and in our communities. We have to become a better people. Even in Karbara, the city of Hussein salam, for two months, kids don't go to school. People don't work because they say we have to commemorate the majlis of Hussein salam the way that Hussein would want it. You think Imam Hussein salam wants you to take vacation for two months off school? <laughs> this gets out, I'm in trouble. But in all honesty, is this what we want? The majlis of Hussein salam is supposed to allow for a revolution of our souls and a reformation of our hearts and then allowing us to bring those pure hearts to a gathering like this whereby we can benefit from one another. And then thirdly and finally, that which we want to yield from these gatherings and from these rituals is to make sure that we're emanating the qualities of Hussein ibn Ali When I beat my chest in the name of Hussein, and when I shed a tear in the name of Hussein, and when I eulogize Hussein, and when I serve food in his name, and I give out water in his name, and I do everything that I do in the name of Hussein, alayhi salatu wasalam, I'm supposed to be making an active effort to emanate the qualities of Hussein, alayhi salam, to love like Hussein, to manifest mercy and compassion like Hussein to stand up for justice like Hussein, to be as beautiful as Hussein. And if you don't know what those qualities are, then during the course of these nights, when we get into little glimpses, because what's so unique about Hussein 
and what's so unique about the day of Ashura and what's so unique about Karbala is that Imam al Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam illuminated all of these qualities on one day in the matter of a few hours in the middle of battle. Who can be merciful to their enemies after they've shed the blood of their children? Like Hussein alayhi salam. When according to a report, Imam al-Hussein he went behind one of the tents on that day of Ashura and he was weeping. And his sister Zainab came toward him and said, Oh my dear brother, oh son of my mother, why do I see you grieving like this? Are you grieving for one of your children, for one of the lost, for one of your lost loved ones? And this report, it states that, No, but I'm grieving because those enemies who are trying to slaughter me, who are trying to kill me, they're going to enter into the fires of hell. And I'm worried about them. It was Hussein alayhi salam who gave water to the same horses that would trample on his body only a few days later. So Hussein is Hussein. And in the midst of these days and in the midst of these nights, we want to be a people who emanate those qualities and strive to allow for our hearts to link with his heart that we're truly able to be Hussein. Tonight, of course, is seemingly the night of the first of the month of Muharram. And a night of really intense grief upon the household of the Prophet It is said that, according to traditions, that even the Prophet himself, that he would leave the home on the first of Muharram without turban and he would have his hair disheveled and when they would ask him O messenger of God why do we see you in this state he would respond because these are the days which recollect the martyrdom of what's going to happen to my son Hussein and it is said that Rayyan ibn Shabib who is one of the companions of Imam Ali al-Raba he narrates that I entered into the house and into the proximity of Imam Ali ibn Musa al-Raba and I saw him in a state of real agony and pain. And I looked at him and I said, Ya Rasulullah, is everything okay? Why do I see you in the state of grief? And he says, Oh Ibn Shabib, do you not know that tonight is the first night of the month of Muharram? And the Imam alayhi salam, then he advised his companion Ibn Shabib, and I'm going to remind myself and advise all of my brothers and sisters, he tells him that fast on the first of the month of Muharram because fasting is a means to soften our hearts toward recollecting the tragedy and truly grieving over our master, Aba Abdullah al-Hussein. It is said that on one occasion when Imams Hassan and Hussein were really young, maybe three and four years old, they were sitting with the Prophet and the Prophet ﷺ, he exited the room for a moment and then he returned back and he looked at his sons, Hassan and Hussein. Remember, they're just two really young, small children. Imam Hassan is one year elder to Imam Hussein. ﷺ. And the Prophet, he picks Imam Hassan up and he embraces him and he kisses him on the mouth and he begins to shed some tears. And at that moment, he looked toward Imam Hussein ﷺ was only three years old and he picks him up and he embraces him and he kisses him on the chest 
And then the Prophet ﷺ was unable to control his emotion, so he left that gathering at that moment. At that moment, Imam al-Hussein ﷺ, again, who was three years old at that time, younger to Imam al-Hassan, he wonders why his grandfather kissed the face and kissed the mouth of his elder brother, but didn't do the same for him. Usually as a sign of affection, you kiss your children, and to kiss them on the lips is something that we are taught within our tradition, especially toward these young children. And it is said that Imam al-Hussein he enters into the room of his mother Fatima and he is really upset. And he says, Oh my mother Fatima, my grandfather Rasulullah, he kissed Imam al-Hassan a different way than he kissed me. And he treated him better than the way that he treated me. Why did he do that? Lady Fatima she had a feeling of the reason why the Prophet did what he did. So she left and she went toward the Prophet and said, Oh my father, Aba Abdullah, your son, he's really, really upset with you. He thought that you didn't treat him the same way that you treated Imam al-Hasan The way that you embraced Imam al-Hasan was different than the way that you embraced Hussein. Why did you do what you did? To which Rasulullah he said that I was sitting with my grandchildren Hassan and Hussein. Hassani wal Hussein Rihanatai. They were the beloveds of the Messenger. And he said, I was sitting with them and I was playing with them and I was enjoying my moments with them, and there were no moments of joy to the Prophet in the same way that he enjoyed being with Imams al Hassan and al Hussein. And then he said at that moment Jibra'il he descended from the sky and he said that he wanted to speak with me. So at that moment I got up and I exited the room and I went to converse with my brother Jibra'il. I thought he had a revelation for me. But he came to me and he said, O Messenger of God, do you love your two children? And he said, I love these two children more than I love anything in the world. He says, and if I tell you what is going to happen to your two children, are you ready to submit? He says, O Jibra'il, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a destiny and a fate for them, I'm ready to submit. And at that moment, Jibra'il, he began to tell me what is going to happen to my two sons, Hassan and Hussein. And then the Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi says, O Fatima, I kissed the mouth of Hassan alayhi salam because in that mouth he is going to be fed that poison. And I kissed the chest of Hussein alayhi salam because of Shimr who is going to sit on that chest of Aba Abdullah on the 10th of Muharram. And it is said that Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salatu salam, she burst out into tears. And according to this narration, the first thing that Fatima, Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam, she asks Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa she doesn't ask, O Messenger of God, who is going to kill my children? When is this going to happen? She doesn't ask any other details. The first question that she asks her father, she says, O oh, Rasulullah, are there going to be people who are going to grieve for my children? And at this moment, Rasulullah says, Oh, my daughter Fatima, jilun ba'dajil, generation after generation, you're going to find men who are going to grieve for your sons, and you're going to find women who are going to grieve for your daughters because of their love for our children. During these days, my brothers and sisters, 
understand the gathering that we're in, the sacredness of it, understand that this is the promise that we made toward Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam This is the promise that we give toward Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. That according to a tradition it states, that on the night of the first of the month of Muharram, that metaphorically the shirt of Hussein alayhi salam is placed on display in the sky. That's why the followers of Ahlul Bayt, they feel a sense of remorse on this night. Because metaphysically, metaphorically, we see the shirt of Hussein alayhi salam that he wore on that day of Ashura. But I ask you, my dear friends, we just imagine pictures of what and how Hussein might have looked on the night of the 11th of Muharram. But can you imagine Zainab when she stood on the hill? What she had to see in terms of what was happening to her brother Abbas. Ala la'natullah, ala al-qawm al-zalameen. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raja'oon.